also be reading to you from Jonah from uh, chapter 1 and verse 17 until chapter 2, verse 10. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, oh, I'm sorry, forgot about chapter 1. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, thanks, Rob, for, for uh, reading that. All right, so keep your Bibles open. I'm going to try a little verse-by-verse -verse exposition today. Um, but first, let's talk about expectations. You'd expect to hear a ringmaster's voice sailing through the sounds and the music at the circus. But you'd expect a librarian to be quiet. You'd expect a muscly and tall basketball player, but you'd expect a small and thin horse jockey. You'd expect a train conductor in Switzerland to arrive on time, and you'd expect a Parisian chef to know her cheeses. Now, what do you expect of a prophet of God? Today, we meet Jonah. Jonah is a prophet who does the exact opposite of what you would expect a prophet to do. A prophet is called by God to speak God's own message. Jonah tries to hide and hopes that God forgets about him long enough that somebody else gets appointed and raised up to do the task. A prophet is raised up, like Esther, for such a time as this, requiring courage and perseverance. In fact, many prophets gained followers years after the prophecy came. Um, Jonah shrinks back, and he's reluctant to share the message even once. Look up prophet, prophet in a dictionary, and you'll find one who is called by God. Jonah hangs up the phone. A textbook prophet knows that it's his job to share God's word, to keep his priorities straight. Jonah is bitter and begrudging. Jonah's called to preach to the city of Nineveh, but Jonah boards a boat headed in the exact 
opposite direction. To be fair to Jonah, none of us would have wanted his job. Jonah lived around 760 BC. We can roughly date the book because Jonah is mentioned by name in the historical book of 2 Kings. He lived during the reign of Jeroboam II, who was the king in the north of Israel, about 40 years after it was invaded. Invaded by who, you might guess? The Ninevites, the Assyrians, because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was a world power at the time. In the coming years, it would occupy much of the present-day Middle East, stretching down as far as uh, Egypt. Assyria poured its energy into building massive armies and led campaigns of terror to expand its empire. We know from the records of Assyrian kings that they kept of their conquest that they were absolutely brutal. Think about skulls on poles. Arguably, Assyria was the most barbaric nation ever, period. Given the time relationship, just 40 years prior, we can assume that Assyria was a present-day threat during the time of Jonah, uh, even though they had not yet successfully laid siege to Israel's cities. Let me ask you, would you want Jonah's job? To bring a message uh, to the would-be invaders of the northern kingdom of Israel. This is speculation, um, but by the way, Jonah starts, uh, the book starts in chapter 1. It starts talking about how Nineveh's wickedness had confronted me, the Lord. Maybe the threatening had already begun. If it had, none of us would have wanted Jonah's job. None of us would have wanted to go to Nineveh, which would be our certain death. Jonah certainly didn't, so he fled. Chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that he fled from the Lord's presence. He was running away from God. Jonah buys a ticket to flee to Asia Minor to a, a town called Tarshish. Um, perhaps he doubted God could find him there outside of the region of Israel. And boy, was he wrong. Like a scene out of the Odyssey, uh, the boat that Jonah is on is taken by such a wind that the superstitious sailors begin crying out to all their gods. So we hear this, and I'm, I'm going to summarize between verses 4 and 12. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to their own god. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so, having learned of Jonah's disobedience, the sailors asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah responds, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault and this great storm has come upon, uh, it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. We learn in this story that he's right. No one but God commands the unruly sea to stop. The passage today is framed in a really unique way and I want you to see it. It's framed by the work of God. Um, it starts in chapter 1, verse 17, after Jonah's thrown over, overboard. We read that the Lord provided a huge uh, fish to swallow Jonah. And then at the end, chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Hear the, those verbs there. The Lord provided a fish. The ESV actually translates it as the Lord ordained a fish. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah on dry land. No mistaking, God is orchestrating this. In fact, 
throughout the book, you see those verbs. God's using the, the forces of nature to carry out his will. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. It tells us the Lord provided a leafy plant for Jonah. The next verse tells us that God provided a worm to chew through the plant so that it withered. The next verse still, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head. It's the same word that's translated ordained. God has a plan in this story for Nineveh, and God has a plan for Jonah, and he's using the sea creatures and natural phenomena to, to make it happen. God certainly uses water. As, as Pastor David um, mentioned earlier in the, in the series, in the Old Testament, water, a large part, portion of the time, it, it pictures judgment. We're supposed to think of judgment. The clearest illustration of this is the, the whole restart of the world with, with Noah, a flood that would purify the earth and of all its sin and treachery. Sometimes we mistake this story for a children's, uh, just a ch children's tale, and we forget that the wrath of God was poured out against humanity, sparing none, none but a small rem remnant, a very small family. That's scary stuff. That's God's judgment on display. Same with Jonah and the sea creature. When Jonah casts himself into the water, he's accepting God's judgment. He knows that the storm is not a random natural disaster. He knows that it is an act of God. In this passage, God exercises his judgment on Jonah. And what I want us to see here is that God has mercy on Jonah too and uses this experience to transform him. For, for Jonah, this experience functions a lot like baptism does. It represents death and resurrection, descending beneath the water's surface and being raised again. A, a new life marked by commitment to calling. Like baptism, the experience changes Jonah and he repents. So the main body of this passage is Jonah's psalm, uh, really a prayer that, that is prayed to God when he's in this desperate place. So in, let's read together. Uh, so in, in chapter 1, verse 17, we see that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So three days and three nights. It's a Hebrew idiom. Um, maybe literal, or I, I think more likely it's, it's used to signify a long period of time. Because the belief that death was confirmed when a body showed no sign of life for three days, the question that people would be asking when they're reading this passage is, is Jonah dead? Chapter 2, verse 1, we read, From inside the fist, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He prays, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Now, we don't know if these are the exact words that Jonah prayed, or if this is an edited version later on. But again, that question, is he dead? He's talking about, from the realm of the dead, I called for help. It's a real question. Uh, verse 3 continues, You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Now we remember that, God, that Jonah submitted to God's judgment. Even though it was the crew that actually threw jo Jonah out into the sea, he is saying that God did it. God hurled me into the depths. So he prays in verse 4, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. I think of this as repentance. In judgment, we get what we deserve, but turning back to God, looking again to his holy temple, that's what it means to repent. It means coming back to God. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed wrapped around my head. Jonah, in this place, is totally unable to rescue himself. He's in death, death's grip. 
Verse 6, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. Whether he's speaking of a literal death and resurrection, I can't be sure. Uh, on the one hand, it sounds like literal death. He says, I sank down, the earth barred me forever, as if it's already happened. But on the other hand, verse 7 seems to imply Jonah only approached death. So let's read. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. The language here, when my life was ebbing away, seems to imply that Jonah's was a near-death experience. Jonah was praying as he was being delivered. In either event, God's miraculous hand was directing the whole thing, and Jonah's life was indeed in God's hands the whole time. It's impossible to survive such an event by natural means. All I know is that God has the power to resurrect, and God has the power to save someone from death's grip. This is a miracle. Jonah experienced a miracle. And so there's a turn in this passage in verse 8. Jonah declares, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah says, Those who cling to worthless idols, and that word worthless idols here is the same as that in Ecclesiastes, vanities or futilities, meaninglessness. What's fleeting? I think it's a very appropriate word to be on the lips of somebody who has just tasted the limits of their own mortality. Jonah says, that's me, at least not anymore. With shouts of grateful praise, I will sacrifice to you. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah experiences a a transformation here, and and it's important to see. Jonah ends his prayer with a vow, a declaration to God that he will make good what he promised. Jonah's baptism transforms him. And he vowed vowed to go to Nineveh. That's what he's referring to, which he does. He goes to Nineveh. I wonder if in your life you have ever been transformed. Uh, Maybe as a kid you wanted to be a cowboy when you grew up. Um, But then as you got older, you realized that wasn't quite a viable career option. Maybe you weren't into sports, but you got married to a Sox fan, and now you actually enjoy them. Maybe you didn't like coffee as a kid but then you grew up and realized you needed to get to work on time. Maybe you think about becoming a Christian and the way it's transformed you. We undergo any number of changes, transformations in our lives, but some of these transformations happen at the hand of God. One of the most fundamental things we can say about baptism is that it's not something we do for God, but it's something that God does for us. Think about it, when we're baptized as a child, a pastor literally holds us in his arm and pours water over our heads. When we're baptized as adults, which I so happen to have been, we relinquish control. We allow ourselves to let a pastor dunk us or pour water on us. And God's the one doing the cleansing work to free us, to welcome us into the church. We may make any number of vows beforehand or afterwards, like in the case of Jonah, but fundamentally, it's God's work of transformation. So back to the story. Jonah undergoes a baptism which transforms him. But in spite of Jonah's life-changing experience, it's not a full transformation. Jonah's transformation was partial. Think about it like this. Jonah experienced a spiritual high. He sang out loud at summer camp. He even wrote his own praise song. Verse 9, he sang, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. He went to Soul Fest. He pledged to be a super Christian, 
Jonah was totally moved and felt the echoes of revival, but Jonah did not have a totally changed heart. After Jonah responded to God's call, he went to Nineveh. He preached the message of hellfire and brimstone that God would bring judgment in 40 days if they didn't repent. The king and the noblemen, they actually responded in humility and repentant. They, they declared a national fast. So in, in chapter 3, verse 10, we read that when God, uh, we just read that God relented. He didn't bring about the destruction he threatened. But Jonah's response wasn't what we would expect. He didn't have a glad heart. He didn't break bread with Nineveh's widows and orphans. The next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, opens this way. To Jonah, this seemed wrong, and he became angry. He was mad that God actually forgave the Ninevites. Read with me in chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah grumbles in a prayer to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Not only do we get insight here into Jonah's state of mind and true motivation into to hiding, but, but we see what's going on for him right now. He's despairing. He says, Lord, take my life away. I, I think, I wonder if you are wondering with me what's going on here. I think actually a good way to think about it is to look at the passage that he's quoting. He's quoting Exodus 34. Third, it says this, so, so the Lord is revealing himself in Exodus 34. He reveals himself as the Lord, the Lord God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness, maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, forgiving inequity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will visit the inequity of the fathers on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Jonah here wanted a god of third and fourth generation judgment to rain down on Assyria. He wanted a god who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Jonah took no joy in the way that God showed mercy to his enemies because to his mind they didn't deserve it. Jonah wasn't all the way transformed. He was all too willing to receive God's mercy himself, but not so willing to share God's mercy. Jonah was a grace hoarder, a grace hoarder. Um, yes, he did what God sent him to do technically. He accepted his calling as a prophet, but he dragged his feet every step of the way and lost the picture of what God sent him to do. I don't think we should be surprised by this picture of gradual transformation. Um, there's a striking parallel again I see with baptism. Baptism doesn't come with a magic word and a big reveal. We don't actually see the effects of baptism the moment we're baptized. In baptism, a person is adopted into the kingdom of God, admitted into the visible church. They're marked by the covenant, um, and they're wa washed of their sin, and they're engrafted into Christ. That's a lot of stuff that happens. Some things are instantaneous here, like the remission of sins, and technically getting admitted into the church as a baptized member. Other things don't happen instantaneously, like yielding to God's work and living by kingdom norms. Children that are baptized still go through their terrible twos, and adults have a whole lot of unlearning to do. The good news is that it's God's work. 
Christians talk about salvation as being born again, but maybe, like Jonah, we live in the tension of the already but not yet. Through baptism, we undergo our own death and rebirth, like, like going into and coming out of the water. Yes, we die to our former selves and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us, but we come short all the time of living into this reality. In spite of this, in spite of our failure to live as fully transformed, we instead trust in the finished work of Christ. So what we can tell from this story is that in spite of Jonah's temporary obedience, God's not done with him. We're, we're here meant to identify with the humanness of the two prayers while feeling the hydrogen peroxide rub of the irony between them. This isn't how things are meant to be, and this isn't how we are meant to, uh, this isn't how we're meant to, to land. God isn't done with us. I think we can all relate to Jonah when we think about the mission of the church, that God's grace is sufficient for the salvation of all, but we can be grace hoarders hoping that God forgets about us long enough to raise up somebody else. We can, be, we can parse the world into categories that aren't God's categories, priding ourselves in our self-curated callings. Truly, we are more like Jonah than Jesus. The good news today is that our hope is not in Jonah and is not meant to be. Our hope is in Jesus. Unlike Jonah, Jesus was the true obedient prophet who came to seek and save the lost. He fulfilled the mission of God. What Jesus does for us is that he submits to, to a baptism, to a judgment that he does not deserve, to the cross. Like Jonah, Jesus is raised triumphantly after three days, but unlike Jonah, Jesus proclaims forgiveness of sins through his death to all. It's a good thing that our hope is in Christ, and that's what I want to leave us with today. So why don't you pray with me? Lord, we are a lot like Jonah. Um, we know your grace and we know your mercy. Sometimes we keep it all to ourselves. Um, I pray that you would give us the, the insight to lean on Jesus who, who finishes your work, who is more than we can be ourselves. Um, and it is truly in Christ, um, his death and his resurrection that we're baptized. And so I think, pray that you'd give us confidence in that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.